lost or taken away. Amen. All right, so get your listening guides out. Uh, let's just finish up last week, okay? So if we don't have the love of God in our heart, then we're going to need to steal love from other sources. So I know that I, you know, uh, last week was hard because you want me to give you a formula, and there is no formula to loving people like Jesus. It's not a three-step process. You have, to, you have to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the character and nature of Jesus. You have to be connected to his will and depend upon the Holy Spirit to reveal all truth to you. And that's how you love people. Now, let me give you an example because I want to help you sort of understand what I'm talking about. Okay? All right, so let's imagine a typical interaction between a husband and a wife. I'm not saying this is my house. I'm just saying that it could be. But it's probably your house too, okay? So let's suppose that the husband takes the trash out each week until he gets a teenage son. Chow! And let's suppose that he forgets one week and then the next week he forgets. Usually, he's good about taking out the trash. But he forgot. So his wife tells him, Honey, you forgot to take the trash out again. Now, the word again is a little jab. It's a little spear. It's a subtle reminder to the husband that he's a failure. And by pointing to his failure, what the wife does is she subtly enhances her goodness. You see, the word again steals a little cookie of love. And here's what she tells herself. This is what we do. We, because we all do it. We tell ourselves, if I don't say again, he's going to keep forgetting. Right? That's why we say again, because we want you to know that we're serious. And if we don't show him that this is becoming a pattern, we're afraid that it might continue, right? Now notice what's the underlying assumption in this interaction. It all depends on me. If I don't show him, no one else will. So what's happened here is that God is completely absent from this interaction. The wife feels vulnerable 
that she's going to somehow suffer or be swallowed up by his forgetfulness. Now, here's what she could do. She could start by just saying, honey, you forgot to take out the trash and leave off the word again. She could say that. And she, the way she could do that is she could first, she, when she feels the temptation to say again, she could ask herself, have I forgotten anything lately? Or she could take out the trash on her own without saying anything. She could do that. Remember, love bears all things. And when we talked about love bearing all things, here's what we said. We said, for love to bear all things, it, it's our willingness to bear the load. And our willingness is unaffected by the person's behavior, sinfulness, or deservedness. Now, if she takes the trash out herself, though, that has its own scary consequences, right? As you think about it. Well, now, she can ask God to help her husband remember to take out the trash. Now, such a simple request of God seems odd to most people. Unless you really believe that God shapes things. You see, prayer brings God into our stories. Even our taking out the trash story. Now, I want you to think about this with me. If she asked God to help her not get frustrated with her husband, but then, in doing so, what she does is she invites God into the story Of this situation between her and her husband. And the question most of you ask in your heart is. Here's what scares you. What if I end up taking the trash out. From here forward. And that's a possibility. But if that were to happen, wouldn't she discover God in the trash? Think about it. See, loving like Jesus allows us to see God in the trash.
that it seemed like such a reasonable thing to say, honey, you forgot to take the trash out again. But wouldn't the win be the spouse who takes the trash out knowing that they're dependent on God and taking the trash out, that they're, that they're learning to love like Jesus and taking the trash out. Don't you see what I'm saying? What it illustrates is you see how broken we are? We think that life is all about our rights. Equality. If I do this, you do that. That is broken love. That is not the love of Jesus. If he loved you like that, you'd be in hell right now. You see, the, the issue's not what's going on with your spouse. The issue's what's going on with you. First Corinthians 13. Let's begin reading in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we all know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So the first thing I want you to see, two main things. First one is perfection is coming for us. Perfection is coming for us. So you see in verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, the perfect, should underline that word perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What does that mean, the perfect? The Greek word teleon, teleos, the, when the teleon comes, the perfect. It's a difficult word to just translate perfect, but I'll try to help you understand it. I'm excited about being able to go back to Brazil. I never would have dreamed in a million years that two years of my life would pass without me being able to go, but praise the Lord, soon enough we'll be able to go. I'm sure we're working on getting our dates for a trip this summer, but in Brazil, so many of my life lessons have been learned there. One of, the, one of the characteristics of their culture is that, of course, they live in this natural paradise. The ground just 
you know, there, there's extraordinary poverty, yet no one starves because the ground just provides almost like the Garden of Eden. You can just eat everything. And in all the trees, you hear birds singing, and, there's all, and all the birds are exotic. You know, you, you don't see pigeons and seagulls. You see all these unbelievable, exotic, colorful, you know, parakeets and toucans and all sorts of stuff everywhere. And one of the things that they do in Brazil, it's just part of their culture, is it's little boys. They start doing it when they're young. It's like, you know, maybe when you were a little boy, you started playing marbles. Well, in Brazil, what you do is you, they take these little twigs and they make bird cages and they go out and they catch birds and they put birds in bird cages and they hang them on the front of their house. And it absolutely drives me crazy. Because, you know, I'm thinking to myself, do you think God made that to go in that stupid cage? Like, let the dang thing out. But it just kills me to see these birds in these cages. But, you see, the, the bird is meant to soar in the sky. That's what God made the bird to do. But in the cage, the bird lives, I guess. It doesn't even live. It exists. It has these incredible capacities these wings that would enable it to do all of these things, yet it can't do any of them because it's contained in this cage. And so it just sits there, and it just sort of struggles, and it just kind of hops around. And it frustrates me because birds aren't meant to just hop around. They're meant to do so much more. They're not made for a cage. A cage can't offer them life. It can only offer them existence. That's how we're, we're born into this world like a bird in a cage. Then salvation comes. And when salvation comes, we then are no longer, we're, we're let out of the cage, not into the wild, but into an aviary. Like when you go to the zoo and you go into those huge, giant, structures and the birds are in those aviaries that's what salvation is like and they're able to fly around they're protected from all the enemies what's needed for them is provided for them but it's not ultimately what they were created to do but it's it's a infinitely better than being in a cage But even today, every one of us in this room that's saved, we're like a bird in an aviary. The teleon has not yet come. Perfect has not yet come. When perfect comes, you will soar as you were intended to soar. You will experience as you were intended to experience you see we know what that means when the perfect comes people get tangled up about well what does verse 10 mean well it's obvious all you have to do is look at verse 12 that says for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face everyone knows what face to face is right Face-to-face face is heaven. Face-to-face face 
can never be an experience on this earth because we can't see face to face. We'd burn up. We can't do that. We're not, we have no capacity. So that's what it means. It, so when he says we know in part, we prophesy in part, knowledge, prophecy, these things, Remember, he's talking about these, the, these gifts that we've been talking about and we'll talk about in the next chapter. These are temporary blessings for an imperfect age. The, the giftedness, the, the gifts that we're given operate in the aviary. You won't use your gifts, you don't need your gifts in heaven. You don't need them. Because why? Because the gifts are used to encourage the body. Nobody in heaven needs encouragement because we're all soaring. And so they're going to pass away. See, one day, all of these things will give way to perfection. And then it will make sense to us how all of these things were pointing towards See, all the ways that God created life in the aviary are all pointing towards. Because here, here's, the, here's the problem with a lot of Christians. They got out of the cage, started flying around the aviary, and they thought, oh, it, this is amazing. It just can't get any better than this. Wrong. You're so wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. That is the most wrong thing in the world. Oh, no, it gets a whole lot better than the aviary. When you get to soar over mountains, soar across the sea, soar the way you were intended in the place where you were made to, that's when the perfect has come. See, perfection is coming. He says when the perfect comes, he's, he's coming. He's coming. The second thing is perfection is here with us. Perfection is here with us. See, perfection is not just when we get out of the aviary. Perfection is not just what sprung us from the cage and put us in the aviary. Perfection also made provision in the aviary. See, not only did he make the aviary possible, stay with me now, but he comes in the aviary and lives in there with us until we get to where the teleon. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Look, look at verse 11. So when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now see, no, notice that last sentence. I, we shall know fully, okay, present tense, even as we, past tense, have been fully known. Present, past. See that? What does that mean? 
even as I have been fully known. That is the most important thing for you to understand this morning. Because to live rightly, to experience life in the aviary to its fullest. See, the mistake would be to think that we were just made for the teleon, and that anything that happens between birth and the teleon doesn't matter. That's a mistake. The aviary is important. Because the teleon made the aviary. He made it possible, and then he comes in there with us, so it matters. So the most important thing for you to understand this morning about life in this aviary is this. What does it mean even as I have been fully known? What does that mean? Have you ever noticed that we desperately desire to be known, for people to, to, to understand us and know us for who we truly are? Nothing feels better than to be loved and accepted. Yet, yet, We're prone to hide. We avoid at all costs being honest and transparent and vulnerable. We want it so bad, but we're scared. We hide and we hold back. You see, because it takes incredible trust not to hide it's hard to be honest and to be vulnerable you know what's honest sure you do you know what's the most honest thing in your life right now come on I'm reading your minds and none of you got the right answer. What'd you have for breakfast? What's the most honest thing in your life right now? Your mirror. It never lies to you. Every day it says, look how ugly you is. It shows you every imperfection you got. You try standing further away from it to make it better. Some of you, when you look in the mirror, you turn sideways. Like just, not all the way. Woo, that's bad. Not straight, just kind of at an angle. Huh? Mirrors are honest. See, they make looking at the outside easy. They bring clarity to the outside, but... They don't show you what's on the inside. What's more difficult? The inside. Remember? Remember verse, look back at verse 4. Remember what I told you a few weeks ago? Notice in this list, love suffers long. So love is patient. Love is kind. And then, so the first two things have to do with the way we deal with other people. And then it flips. And everything that follows, love does not envy. 
does not parade itself, does not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, does not think evil. All those are inside. All those are external things that, that point to internal problems. See, if you have an envy problem, it's, the problem's not with what you envy, it's the problem's with you. All those are, well, all, this, all these characteristics of love are, are, take internal mirrors to see. You see that? What are we talking about? Even as I have been fully known, remember? God already knows you from the inside. From the inside out. All of it. He made you. So you see, when we look in this mirror dimly, We need to work to see what's on the inside. We need to pay attention to what's on the inside. We need to have ears to hear what's on the inside. But we, we have a limited capacity to be able to do that. What, what does it mean to be loved? Love is to be delighted in for who you are, not for what you bring to the relationship. See, we talked about this a few weeks ago on the flip side, and we talked about how you can't come to God for what He'll do for you. You have to come to God for who He is. That's not just a rule that God made up. That's because that's what love is. And God's only interested in a relationship with you based on love, see? So like in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Remember when we talked about those, we said that Jesus loves us for nothing in return. That's how we understand love. How many times before God saved you did he just take the trash out for you? He just took it out. Remember 1 Peter 3? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. Why did he do that? That he could just bring us to God, you see? That he could bring us to God. So think about something. It's almost every week I reference Matthew 7 because it's so critical to understand this. So I hope as I read this, some things will come together in your mind. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, just listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, remember how we, what we talked about last week, right? You can't love like God unless you say, God, you're the boss. Remember that? Okay. Next verse, many will say to me in that day, 
think about what this shows us. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, I want you to think about this. I never knew you. Well, well, wait a minute. I thought God knows everything. I mean, he's God. I never knew you. Doesn't God know everyone? What's the definition of love? To be delighted in for who you are, not what you bring to the relationship. When Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How did the people he was talking about respond to that statement? They started listing what they bring to the relationship. Is that what happened? And then Jesus said, I never knew you. How does an all-knowing God say, I never knew you? What does that mean? The word know means relationship. He doesn't mean I didn't know anything about you. Of course, he's God. He knows everything about everyone. That's not what that means. When he says, I didn't know you, that word know means we weren't in relationship. You didn't, you loved me in your love. That's what that verse is showing It's showing how religious people, active people who do lots of things, love God in their own love. And Jesus said, I wasn't in relationship with you because you tried to love me based on what you bring to me. And I don't play that game. That's what God said. That's not love. Here's love. Look at what Jesus says. This is an amazing passage in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Teleon, right? Soaring. That they may behold my glory which you have given to me. How? Look, that you have given to me. See the word for? How has he done all this? You loved me before the foundation of the world. You knew me before the foundation of the world. You see, when God tells somebody, like in the Old Testament, God says, before you were born, I knew you. Well, If you know anything about your Bible, you should say, well, God knows everyone before they're born. Yes, but not in the way he's talking about. He's talking about relationship. You see? 
And so it's this love, it's this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, with, between the, the, the Son and the Holy Spirit, between the Holy Spirit and the Father. It's this love relationship that we're invited into in perfection. And so when he says that the way you have been fully known, what God's telling us this morning. He's saying to, to every person he knows in here as his son or daughter, every saved person in this room, here's what he's saying. He's saying you are fully known and loved. You're fully known and fully loved. I know everything about you. And I utterly and completely accept you. That's an amazing statement. But you know what? We can't fully know him in the aviary. We can know him. Remember he said to those who didn't, well, I never knew you. So the implication is that there's going to be some who enter through the narrow gate that he did know in the aviary. But they didn't fully know him in the aviary because to fully know him, you have to soar. How do I know that? See, if I... How do I know that I can't fully know God in the aviary? I think you know if you think about it. See, if I, if I knew, if I fully knew the way God loves me, if I fully knew that, remember it's past tense, the way you've, Already been loved. Remember that? Already been known. If, if I knew today fully the way I will one day, but I can't today. But if I knew today fully the way God loved me, what would be the implication of that? I would never sin. You would never sin. If you knew the way God loved you, if you fully knew, that's why there's no sin in heaven. There's, it's not there's, there's no, have you ever wondered, well, why is there no sin in heaven? Not because there's no sin allowed. It's because you're fully known. You're, you know as you've already been fully known. If you knew the way God loved you right now, you'd never sin. You'd never be impatient. You'd never be angry. You'd never be rude. You'd never hold a grudge. You'd never be anxious. You'd never be afraid. If you knew fully the way he loved you. See, all these things that have been listed out. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's it's not provoked. It's, it's, it's illustrating all these internal problems that we have, right? Yeah. 
What's at the heart of all these behaviors? What's wrong inside of us that makes us more worried about who takes out the trash? What's fair? Making sure we don't do more than our share. Making sure we don't go the extra mile. Making sure that if I go the extra mile for you, you're going to go the extra mile for me. Making sure that the most important thing to me is that I do not get taken advantage of. Instead of focusing on God and making God the center of that moment. What's wrong? What, what, what's at the heart of all these behaviors? Look at them. What is at the heart of envy, boasting, rudeness? All these things. What is it? Insecurity. They're all rooted in insecurity. And what is insecurity rooted in? Faulty identity. And what's our fault? The identity, we don't know. We don't know how much God loves us. The only way I can take out the trash without grumbling in my heart is by knowing how much God loves me. See, when I get home today, There's a big burned up charred pile of metal in my front yard and a gazebo where I shared so many memories with my kids and my friends and people that I love burnt to the ground. Ashes. But the way you don't get bitter is you remember how much God loves you. What's, what really matters? If we knew the way that we were known and loved in the aviary, in this aviary right here, we wouldn't do any of these things because we'd be so secure in who we are. I wouldn't need, and you wouldn't need, we wouldn't need to steal love from each other. If we knew how much we were loved, we wouldn't worry about what you thought of me and what I thought of you. We wouldn't be so concerned about whether or not people saw behind the curtain who we really are. We wouldn't spend so much time. All of our time and energy is spent on dressing up what we see in the mirror instead of what's important. That's why we hide. If you knew how much God loves you, if you knew that you were fully known and fully loved, you'd be able to just give it away to other people because you knew you'd never run out. It's okay.
okay. That's what's wrong with us. That's why some of you left so frustrated last week. I don't understand how to love people like Jesus. What does that mean? You want a formula. Okay. I'll give you a formula. You ready? Here's your formula. You you devote your time to this formula. What is so mind-boggling about this passage, and there are many, many things, but listen to me. Here's what is mind-blowing. Is that when we get out of the aviary and we begin to experience the teleon, here's what's going to blow everybody's mind. This is what... This passage teaches. When we experience the teleon and we, we're like, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. This is so unbelievable. And we realize, he loved me this much in there. And I didn't know. When we experience the teleon and we feel like everything has changed, one thing didn't change. God won't love you more in heaven than he does right now because that's impossible. It's impossible. If you want to love people like Jesus, you got to drill that truth down into your heart. So we're going to move to the Lord's table, and we're going to think about these things. And I want you to understand that when we come to the table, this is a, this is a moment for confession, Okay? Confession is not something to make ourselves feel guilty. That's not what confession is. Confession is a glorious reminder of our need for grace. Confession is the expression of what's not right. In light of the fact that God's promised to make it right. So right Christian confession is always done in the context of great confidence and hope. So remember, it's a serious thing to come to compute 
communion with an unrepentant heart. It's a very serious thing to God. So we can't receive the supper in a careless manner. We can't do that. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're uncertain about your salvation, then let's get it straight today, right now, before we do anything else. You need to get it straight. Just embrace this. Think of the opportunity that's before you. You could take the Lord's Supper this morning for the first time as his child. You could do that. Yeah. How great would that be? But if you're not a believer, and today's not your day, you're, you're not sure God's worthy of your affection in your heart, then you just sit there and listen. Don't do anything that I'm going to instruct everyone else to do. Don't do it. Not because something bad will happen to you, but because it's pointless. This is for God's children. But if you're God's child and you sit there and don't do it, it is horribly bad. So do not do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand and we're going to take a few moments and we're going to confess in our hearts our need for grace. You can come to the altar and you can pray and you can thank God for the gift of the aviary and His presence with us in it and the promise of the teleon. But the focus is to make the most of this time. To live life in the aviary to the fullest capacity that we can. To love with the most Jesus-like fervency possible. Which is to, to grasp as much of the way God loves us and knows us as possible. And sin in our heart blocks that. Maybe you need to get baptized. Great. I would love to talk to you about that. Pastor Matt would love to talk to you about that. You want us to pray with you about your salvation? We'd love to do that. It's just a time, right? Where you don't have to come up here. You can stay right where you are. You can just pray a prayer of confession before God. Let's stand and bow our heads.